What do you think of when you think of a sign? This will be the sign. Sometimes you read that language in Scripture, and indeed we'll see this language of a sign being given in Scripture. But what I want to put on your radar from the outset here is that sometimes a sign might be a little bit different from the way in which we normally think of it. Normally we think of a sign as something that we get right now that points ahead to an event that will happen in the future. Sometimes it can actually come in the reverse order. And that's actually what we see this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be in uh, verses 1 through 16 this morning. Isaiah 7 verses 1 through 16. Isaiah writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear-Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass." For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it Deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, this text that we've just read is obviously one of the great prophecies of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 
What we want to do this morning as we, as we look at Isaiah 7 and consider the coming of Christ is first we want to think about this prophecy in the context, uh, the historical context of Isaiah chapter 7, the reign of Ahaz, king of Judah. So we want to think about the prophecy in its context. Secondly, we want to think about its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then thirdly, we want to think about the implications of this great truth that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So we want to think about the prophecy in its context. We want to think about the fulfillment of the prophecy in the birth of Christ. And then we want to consider the, the implications of this for us. And so the context here, the context of this prophecy about our Lord is obviously that of war-torn Judah in the days of King Ahaz, the historical Accounts of King Ahaz are found in 2 Kings chapter 16, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and we will do well to take note of what those accounts tell us about the king, King Ahaz, and the times in which King Ahaz reigned. And particularly, we need to think about the wickedness of King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a very wicked man. Second uh, Chronicles 28, 1 through 4 kind of frames his life or introduces him in this way. It says, He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel." He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So this is, this is Ahaz, a, a wicked king. For all practical purposes, he's a pagan king of Judah. And it was on account of his wickedness that the nation of Judah got into the trouble that is described here in Isaiah chapter 7. It was judgment upon the wickedness of Ahaz and therefore the wickedness of the nation also that resulted in uh, Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, going up to Jerusalem to make war against it. Second Chronicles 28.5 makes that connection between the wickedness of Ahaz and this expedition of Aram and Israel against Judah explicit. And so we read there these words that, Wherefore... The Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus, and he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. And, and so I think there's a chance that we may read these, these first few verses of Isaiah chapter 7 about this, this conflict and this invasion into Judah by the nations of, of Aram and Israel, and we may not fully realize quite how dire the situation was. Now, on the one hand, we get it that, yes, there's an invasion, and when there's an invasion, things are always dangerous. These foreign kings are said to be planning to take down the house of David from the throne and put someone else into place. As you see there in verse 6, they've got a man... Uh, who's referred to there as the son of Tabeel. We don't know anything else about this man, but he is the son of Tabeel, and they're planning to make him the new king of Judah. And so we can understand that, sure, King Ahaz is going to be on edge 
about these things, right? We read there in verse 2 that when it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And so, sure, nobody likes to get defeated in war, and when there's a buildup of troops just across the border, you're going to obviously and understandably get a little bit nervous. But in order for us to get a better handle on how bad things actually were, just hear the description of what happened from Second Chronicles 28, verses 6 through 8. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maasiah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the ruler of the house, and Elkanah, second to the king. The sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they took also a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. And so things are looking pretty bad, to put it even mildly. 120 valiant men slain in one day. 200,000 captives taken. The king's son, dead. The ruler of the house, the ruler of the king's household, dead. The man who is second to the king, also dead. Things are not looking good for the nation of Judah. Things are not looking good for the royal household here. Now, we can't be precisely certain just exactly when, but sometime in the midst of this terrible and confused season of military disaster and captivity and desolation, the Lord sent Isaiah to Ahaz to deliver a word of hope to him. Now, when we consider who this man was, this man Ahaz, and we consider his sin against the Lord and the abyss of wickedness into which he had led his nation, this is really amazing, right? That the Lord would send to all people this king, a word of hope, a word of encouragement. Second Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen describes him as having brought about a lack of restraint in his nation and as having been very unfaithful to the Lord. And yet, Nevertheless, the Lord is gracious to a man like that by giving him the kind of message that we find in verses 4 through 9. Just look back there to Isaiah 7, where he says, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Right? The Lord, Lord says, don't worry about this. He was going to deliver them from it. And so in his grace, the Lord favors this king who, again, is an essentially pagan king of Judah, an apostate descendant of David. The Lord favors him with an announcement that his enemies will not prevail in the end and that even the northern kingdom of Israel, which is referred to here as Ephraim, would cease to exist, right? In another 65 years, uh, within another 65 years, they will cease to exist. And as king of Judah, Ahaz is to take care and be calm, have no fear, not be faint-hearted on account of those who were coming against him. As we see there in verse 9, he is called to faith, he's called to believe this gracious promise of the Lord. Therefore, he's to be calm. Part of what this would have meant for him is not seeking a military alliance with Assyria so that they could band together and fight against Aram and Israel. Instead, he was to trust in the Lord and the Lord's deliverance. Now, in, in what follows, beginning 
at verse 10, we see how the Lord, through Isaiah, offers to give this king Ahaz a sign. A sign which would, would demonstrate the truth of what the Lord had just announced. The Lord, through Isaiah, tells Ahaz to ask, what do you want the sign to be? Just lay it out. It can be as deep as Sheol, it can be as high as heaven. What do you want to see? And Ahaz says no. He refused the command to ask. And on the one hand, this might seem, this might seem like a pious thing, right? He says that he refuses to test the Lord. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, certainly it is a bad thing to test the Lord, right? That's the temptation which our Lord Jesus resisted when he uh, resisted the temptation to throw himself down from the temple. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That kind of testing of the Lord essentially treats the Lord as a magician doing a magic act. Show me something. I want to see it. But the situation here was different. It would not have been a sinful thing for Ahaz to ask for a sign under the circumstances, especially when the Lord says, ask for a sign. But Ahaz refuses. And then comes the rebuke. Verse 13. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? And so while on the surface this refusal might have appeared to be pious and godly, it was not pious, but it was presumptuous. It was disobedient. And as a result of this, the Lord himself announces what sign he's going to give to the house of David. And there it is in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, as we have already read together this morning that account from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us where this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled in Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary. And thus, we have the, the promise given here. We have the fulfillment given in Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. And thus, we have the, the promise and fulfillment. But what we need to do here is to think about the way in which the virgin birth of the Messiah actually is a sign of what the Lord had promised to Ahaz. Right? This is all connected somehow with the fact that Ahaz, under these dire circumstances, is supposed to be calm, to not be uptight, and to trust the Lord that deliverance is going to come and there is a sign given to him. And so, in other words... What does the virgin birth of Jesus have to do with the preservation of Ahaz and the safety of Judah? What's, what's the connection? How is it a sign? Well, in order to understand that and rightly consider it, I think we need to take a step back and think about the nature of signs. Many times, if not most of the time, when we think about a sign, we think of it in the sense of it being a prophetic sign, pointing forward to a future event. And so just to use a biblical example of this, we think of it in terms of, of 2 Kings 20 or the, the parallel in Isaiah chapter 38. In, uh, in both of those two places, we read about how Hezekiah was sick, and the Lord promised him that he would recover from his illness. And Hezekiah asks then, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? 
And the Lord asked Hezekiah, should the, should the shadow go backwards ten steps or forwards ten steps? And Hezekiah wanted the shadow to go backwards ten steps. And that's what the Lord did. Hezekiah saw the sign, and the implication is that this happened as a precursor pointing to the fact that within three days Hezekiah would be healed and would be able to go up to the temple of the Lord. The sign came first and confirmed the Lord, that the Lord's promise would be fulfilled. And I think that's probably our default mode when we think about the way that biblical signs function. We think of a sign as the Lord doing something now in order to confirm his promise about what is coming as a future event. We might call this a prophetic sign pointing to a future event. The sign coming first and then the circumstance of which it was a sign coming afterwards. Now, obviously, the sign described in Isaiah 7.14 is not that kind of a sign, because the sign of the virgin birth of the Messiah and the circumstance of which it was a sign uh, was the failure of Israel and Aram to make good on their designs, right? The, The circumstance was that Israel and Aram were not going to be able to defeat Judah. But the sign was the virgin birth of the Messiah. And so the order of events is reversed from what we might expect in that the promised circumstance of deliverance, deliverance from Aram and Israel happens first, and then the sign follows, actually hundreds of years later. And we need to note that sometimes in Scripture, the signs do, in fact, follow, or at least accompany rather than precede the circumstances of which they are signs. Now, we could probably give more than one example here, but I'll I'll mention one, and this also comes from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 37, uh, verses 30 to 32. In Isaiah 37, again, this was the reign of of Hezekiah. The uh, Lord had announced through Isaiah that the Assyrian attack against Jerusalem by Sennacherib would be thwarted, and then the Lord announced the sign. Isaiah 37, beginning verse 30. Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so this future manner of their eating, eating the first year what sprang from itself, the second year what sprang from that, and then the third year being able to sow and plant and cultivate and then eat the food from their labor, that was going to be the sign that the Lord was faithful to deliver them from the Assyrians. One writer described the nature of the sign there in Isaiah 37 by saying, thus the Lord would confirm retrospectively that it was his hand that had dispersed the threat. The Lord dispersed the threat first, and then the sign came later, confirming that it was the Lord who had done that. And even so, here in Isaiah 7, the promised present deliverance would be confirmed retrospectively in the fulfillment of the promise of verse 14. And I think if we stop to consider this, the fulfillment of Verse 14, in the birth of the Messiah, the one who would be Emmanuel, God with us, actually does function in this way, right? The survival of the Davidic line was 
tied up with the coming of the Messiah. The Lord had promised to David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that David's house and his kingdom would endure before the Lord forever, that his throne would be established forever. And thus this promise of verse 14 points to the fact that the house of David would not be annihilated, that it would remain, that it would not be exterminated by this coalition of of Aram and Israel. It would endure and that the Messiah, Emmanuel, would be born. Now true, the sign would come after the event of the deliverance, but the promised sign could not have possibly been fulfilled if the Davidic house had been completely annihilated. This promise was pointing to the fact that the Davidic line, the Davidic house would continue and that ultimately the Messiah, Emmanuel, would come and that he would come through the birth being born to a virgin. Now, it's been thought, true, by some that there may be a partial fulfillment of the words of verse 14 in the birth of someone else in closer proximity to Ahaz. Some would point to uh, the birth of Shalal Hashbaz just in the next chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 8.3, given the name that he received and because of the promise accompanying him in Isaiah 8.4, where we read, For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so in other words, here with the, the birth of Mahershalal Hashbaz in Isaiah 8, there's, there's his birth, his name, is obviously tied up with the fact that this threat of Israel and Aram against the nation of Israel is not, is not going to, to make good on its designs. And likewise, similarly, in Isaiah 7, the, the promise concerning Emmanuel is tied up. It is a sign to Ahaz that this coalition is not going to make good on their designs. And so some have thought, well, obviously Isaiah 7.14 is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but maybe there's, maybe there's some partial fulfillment here in the birth of Mahershalal Hashbaz. But I think that what may be said here uh, is that though there are some similarities in as much as both point to the fact that this coalition is not going to achieve its goals, nevertheless, there are also some dissimilarities between the birth of Mahershalal Hashbaz and what is prophesied here in Isaiah 7.14. Because we need to note that Mahershalal Hashbaz was born to Isaiah's wife, not to a virgin. Right? It's very clear in Isaiah 8 that this was not a virgin birth. And the boy's name is Mahershalal Hashbaz, not Emmanuel. And nor is he, in any sense, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ had the given name of Jesus, but he actually was God with us. And so you, you see what I'm saying is that, is that even though they both are pointing to the same reality, namely that Aram and Israel are not going to make good on their goals, Nevertheless, there's, there's a difference between what is prophesied of the child in Isaiah 7 and the birth of Mahershalal Hashbaz in Isaiah chapter 8. Because Isaiah's son is not Emmanuel, 
not in his birth name, nor is it an apt description of who he is, nor was he born of a virgin. So, strictly speaking, then, verse 14, it's not a prophecy of Mahershalal Hashbaz, or, for that matter, of any other child except Jesus. Verse 14 points to Jesus. And verse 15 then seems to refer to the Christ child as growing and eating the usual food of his country and his time, curds and honey, and growing so as to know to refuse evil and choose good. But then verse 16 is somewhat difficult because on the one hand, the boy who is referred to seems to be one and the same with Emmanuel, right? If you just follow the, the logic of, of the prophecy here as it's given, you have this one who is born to a virgin who's called Emmanuel, verse 14. You have him referred to as he in verse 15. Then comes verse 16 with reference to the boy. Before the boy will know enough to refuse the evil and choose the good. And so it all seems to be pointing to the same person. And indeed, what is said in verse 16 is certainly true of Jesus. Before Jesus had matured enough to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land of those two kings had been forsaken. The northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Aram had long since been defeated and overrun. But on the other hand, we do find in the immediate context of this prophecy, another prophecy with immediate implications for the threat that Judah was facing at the time, right? You have the birth of Mahershalal Hashbaz there in Isaiah 8.4. You have the, the similarity in terms of the, the boy coming to maturity, right? Before uh, Isaiah 8.4, before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, right here in this same area of the book of Isaiah, there's another prophecy with immediate implications concerning this military crisis. And so some might refer verse 16 to Mahershal al-Hashbaz. Some have uh, pointed to verse 16 and have thought that uh, Isaiah's other son, Shir Jashub, might be in view here. That, In other words, Isaiah is delivering this prophecy to Ahaz, and he speaks the word to him concerning the coming of Christ in verses 14 and 15. And then it's almost like he points to his son Shir Jashub, who was with him on that occasion, as you find in Isaiah 7.3, and as if he pointed to Shir Jashub and said, before the boy, before this boy, knows enough to refuse the evil and choose the good, then the land of those two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now I think certainly various approaches are possible, especially in regard to verse 16, but I prefer the sense that takes all Verses 14, 15, and 16 as pointing to Christ. There, uh, on the one hand, may seem to be the, the difficulty between the, the coming of the sign and the actual uh, fulfillment of that of which it is a sign, namely uh, the fact that Ahaz will be safe and not destroyed by these, by these kings. But I think that is the most natural reading of the prophecy, as to see it as referring to Emmanuel, born of a virgin, the he of verse 15, the boy of verse 16, all one and the same. And certainly all that is said there in those verses is certainly true of Jesus Christ. But we certainly know, whatever one may choose to do with verse 16, we certainly know that Isaiah 7:14 is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Matthew straight up tells us that it is. And so this is the context of the prophecy of Christ's birth. 
The birth of Christ was a sign that the house of David would continue. It would not be annihilated or wiped out. This was a sign that came to a disobedient, unbelieving, and fearful king during a season of great violence and distress. Now, this should have been a matter of great encouragement to him. It should have served to point him back to the great promises that pertain to his nation, that there was in the seed of Abraham that all nations would be blessed. This should have served to point him back to the Davidic covenant, that David's throne would endure forever. And as such, it should have pointed him back to the faith of Abraham and to the faith of David. But it didn't. Ahaz continued on in his ungodliness. We don't know for sure whether he took any encouragement or any comfort from this prophecy from Isaiah that his dynasty would not be wiped out by this menacing threat which he faced. He might have been thankful to hear that these plans of these enemy nations would not come to fruition, but even if he was thankful or glad to hear that news, he didn't glorify God. He didn't return thanks to God on account of God promising a gracious deliverance. Instead, Ahaz kept pursuing his own wicked agenda, despite the fact that he'd received the greatest news of all time, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now that's the, the context of this prophecy. Matthew, again, speaks in no, no uncertain terms of its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. And we know, and we've heard this morning, those histories from Matthew and Luke, how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would conceive in her womb and would bear a son, that he would be the son of the Most High, and that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, that his kingdom would have no end. Now, though she was a virgin, this would be accomplished when the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. We read in Matthew 1 of how when Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit before she and Joseph came together, and this child was the one who would save his people from their sins. Matthew says, Now this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And it is in this way that our Lord Jesus Christ becomes our Savior and becomes our mediator. In that language of the Apostles' Creed, he was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He was the Son of God from all eternity and then became the Son of Man by virtue of this fact, that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. One writer expressed well what this means when he said that the eternal Son of God, of the same essence as the Father, without laying anything aside, without any conversion or mixing of his divine nature, was made something that he was not before, namely human, as the scripture explains. He took on the seed of Abraham, that is, our flesh, from the substance of the virgin, as well as a truly human soul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that he might be like his brothers in all things, except for sin. This is what John was describing when he said, the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. That God the Son became a man and will remain a man for all of eternity. He is and now always will be Emmanuel, God with us. He is God and at the same time he is with us, with us as a man. True God and yet also true man, with a true human body and true human soul. And the accounts in the Gospels teach us how this is so. He was man in that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and derived his human nature, body and soul, from her. This conception was by the power of the Holy Spirit as the power of the Most High overshadowed her. And thus our Lord Jesus is is one person and combines within his one person the divine nature and the human nature. In other words, he now has all the necessary attributes that constitute him as God, as he always has from eternity, and now in the incarnation he has all of the necessary attributes that constitute him as a man. And thus in one person our Lord Jesus Christ has two natures, fully God and fully man. And it is both fitting and necessary for us that the Son of God came to earth in this way. The conception by the Holy Spirit preserved the God-man from original sin. All the rest of us who were begotten in the usual way are, as David said of himself in Psalm 51, brought forth in sin. And in sin my mother conceived me. Paul described the reality of it in Ephesians 2.3 by saying that we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But Christ is preserved from this corruption and is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is preserved from the stain of original sin by this supernatural conception. And in order to accomplish our redemption, it was necessary that our Savior would unite within himself both the divine nature and the human nature in his one person. He had to be true man in order to be our sacrifice, He had to be true man in order to be our priest. He could not have fulfilled the law in our place if he were not a true man. He could not have taken our place in the atonement as our substitute, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree if he were not a true man. Likewise, he could not have been our high priest if he were not a true man. And so we find in Hebrews 2, 16 through 18, that assuredly he does not give help to angels But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. He therefore had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Christ had to be man in order to save us. But... Nevertheless, our salvation could not be accomplished by someone who was merely a man. The work of our redemption required omnipotence in order to be able to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. The work of redemption required the infinite merits of one who is God so that those merits could be applied to his people, credited to them so that they could be counted as righteous. No one else could grant forgiveness of sins and eternal life except one who is truly himself God. And the Savior of the world had to be 
divine because it is in this way that God demonstrates the fullness of his love. As we read in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No doubt God's love was demonstrated for his people when he sent human deliverers in their past, men like Moses and Joshua and the judges. But it is only in the coming of Christ, the Son of God, and his suffering and death and resurrection on our behalf that we find the full love of God the Father demonstrated for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, as we find in Romans 5.8. Or as John speaks in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested for us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how we see the magnificence and the infinite nature of the love of God in that he sent as our Savior one who was, in fact, his only son, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus born of Mary. And so we've seen the prophecy in its context. We've seen its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Now, what do, what do we do with this great fact? Right, so far, we've kind of been dealing with the incarnation at the, at the level of theory. What do, what do we do with this? What do we derive from this? Well, first, we must receive it in faith. God promised this through Isaiah, and he announced its fulfillment through Matthew. We must receive it in faith and trust that God did just what he said he was going to do, and he did just what he said he did do. And believing the truth of it, we must likewise be comforted by the fact of it. Again, we must recognize the love of God toward us in this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We must be comforted by the great fact that God did not leave us to ourselves to be destroyed by our sin. He could have, in justice, let the whole human race perish in their transgressions. He was not obligated by anyone to save anyone. But he didn't let us all perish. All the way from the garden, in that dark day of transgression, there had been the promises of the coming Messiah, of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And indeed, Jesus, born of Mary, is the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, because he has no human father, but he is the seed of the woman. And we should take great comfort in that. As Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we should take comfort in Christ's incarnation, that he's come. We should take comfort, likewise, from that trustworthy saying of 1 Timothy 1, 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Another implication of the incarnation of the Son of God is that we must love. Obviously, we must love God because God so loved us and sent his Son into the world. The Son of God humbled himself and was made in our likeness. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary to bring about this miraculous birth. And the Holy Spirit anointed our Lord Jesus such that he truly was the Messiah, truly was the anointed one of God. 
And so we must love God, all three persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for they played a role in the incarnation of the Son of God for our salvation. And we must not only love God, but we must also love one another. Right? That was John's application in 1 John 4, where he talked about this uh, being the, the way in which the love of God was, was manifested and that he sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so loved us by sending his own Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, then we also ought to love one another. The incarnation should motivate us to love one another. In light of the love of God and the way that he has loved us by sending his Son into the world, we ought to love one another. God has drawn us to himself by his love, and being taken into the love of God, we must then share that love with others. Another implication, I realize I'm kind of, kind of going through these quickly, but another implication is humility. This is the implication drawn out in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with, as, as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of the divine nature. He couldn't do that as God. He could not un-God himself, but as God. He emptied himself of, we might say, the divine prerogatives. He emptied himself by becoming a man, by taking a human nature to himself, by suffering himself, as it were, to be conceived and enshrined in the womb of the Virgin Mary, suffering himself, allowing himself to be born into a stable, by allowing himself to to grow up in poverty, to obey God all through his life. Think of what Christ did has done in humbling himself. And Paul says, let this mind be also in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so we must believe, we must love, we must love God, must love others, we must humble ourselves, let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ. And we must also turn from our sins in true repentance. Any time spent in the service of sin is far too long. Christ came to deliver us from such wickedness that we might live a new life for him. If I can borrow the words of an old Christmas sermon from centuries ago, I think this says it well. Let us confess him with our mouths, praise him with our tongues, believe on him with our hearts, and glorify him with our good works. Christ is the light, let us receive the light. Christ is the truth, let us believe the truth. Christ is the way, let us follow the way. And because he is our only master, our only teacher, our only shepherd and chief captain, therefore let us become his servants, his scholars, his sheep, and his soldiers. As for sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil, whose servants and bond slaves we were before Christ's coming, let us utterly cast them off and defy them as the chief and only enemies of our soul. And seeing we are once delivered from their cruel tyranny by Christ, Let us never fall into their hands again. Amen. Let's love Christ and serve him and give all praise and glory to God through him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the coming of Christ, what was prophesied of him in the Old Testament time and what was fulfilled by him as we see in the pages of the New Testament. We ask, Lord, that you would give us grace to to worship you. Give us the grace to turn from sin, to walk with you, and to love you with all of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.